Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We are joined in uh, this portion of our program, joined by Melissa Norton. Melissa is executive director of Bottomless Closets. We're going to find out about Bottomless Closets in uh, our discussion. I think that a lot of the folks listening to our discussion today are going to be very interested in the work that this organization does First of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. You have a very interesting background as well, uh, because I know you had been involved in working with the ASPCA for a number of years. How did you come to Bottomless Closet? I've been in the nonprofit world basically my entire career. Um, I'm actually an attorney by training, and when I went to law school, all I wanted to do was work in nonprofits. Um, I actually worked for the Madison Square Garden Cheering for Children Foundation uh, right out of law school. And then I started in a legal capacity at the ASPCA. For those who don't know, that's the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Um, and I worked my way up there um, to become the number two in the organization. I was chief of staff and general counsel. Um, and when I was at the, when I joined the ASPCA, we were fairly small, um, at about 125 people around the country. And by the time I left, we had over 800 people. Um, in the organization, so we grew substantially. Um, and looking at new opportunities after 13 years, I realized that one of the things I missed was a smaller organization where I felt a hands-on connection to the mission. And I personally love to work on people's resumes um, and help them transform into a, a new role um, as they, they go out in the job market. Um, and Bottomless Closet is a small organization that's New York City-based, uh, we help women who have been re-entering the workforce or entering the workforce for the first time. Um, and one of the things that we do is help them with their resumes um, to help them succeed on the job. Okay, so when you say that you're helping uh, women in this regard, a couple thoughts come to mind. First of all, um, how old an organization is Bottomless Closet? When did it start? Bottomless Closet started in 1999 in response to the Welfare Act, that was passed during the Clinton administration. Um, we are embarking on our 20th year coming up, which is pretty exciting for us. Mm. And then the other thought that comes to my mind is, tell us about the women that Bottomless Closet works with. What are they like? So we serve a really big cross-section of New York City women, which could be any of us. Um, they're women who are homeless, domestic violence victims, uh, suffered with substance abuse, are uh, getting out of prison, uh, had, had issues with mental illness, um, long-term unemployment, even girls aging out of the foster care system or kids who are in the city college system. A lot of people who um, people wouldn't assume would necessarily have challenges in getting jobs or getting prepared for job interviews. Just because you're in a community college doesn't mean you have the resources to prepare for a job interview. So it really could be anybody. Uh, there are a lot of people who I think lost their jobs in the 2008 downturn and never quite got their stride back. So it's a range of people 
from someone who's never even gotten um, a GED to someone who's got a graduate degree. Okay, so that's a broad brush in terms of the people that you're working with. Um, there's so many different areas where potentially, you know, they can be helped. Um, you have to have very comprehensive services. Let's talk about a couple of specific things. One is this whole approach to um, a resume or, I guess, a way of packaging oneself uh, and marketing oneself. How do you phrase what's most important? Sure. Well, I think what we do best is turn applicants into candidates. Um, We help people look at their body of work or just what their life has been and create a resume. Oftentimes we're dealing with women who've never had a resume before, never had a real full-time job before. Many have been stay-at-home moms. Um, So we work with them on their resume to build out something that represents who they are. Um, A lot of what they've done is not typical skills, um, but they are marketable skills, and we help cobble that resume together sometimes when there hasn't been one in the past. When you say typical skills, not necessarily... Right, so they haven't had formal education or Mm -hmm. they haven't had formal work experience, per se, Um, but they've had a lot of life experience. Okay, and that's marketable. Absolutely. If they've been home taking care of a parent, they have the skills to be a home health aide, as an example. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So packaging, marketing oneself is one aspect of this. Another big aspect of the interview process is even the whole approach to it. And that gets into, you know, mentally the approach going in. But then the thing that I... This very often makes me scream when I see how people um, come to interviews these days. Uh, Very often it's in not the nicest attire, and that may be an understatement in some (laughs) cases. How do you best advise the women that you're working with? So half of our office is actually a boutique. Um, It is stocked like any other boutique you would see on Madison Avenue. Um, it is career clothing, um, accessories, handbags, shoes, jewelry, etc. Um, when women come to us, many of them have been in the workforce before, um, have been in all kinds of jobs. They know exactly what's appropriate for an interview. Others have no idea. Um, when they come to our offices, they are paired one-on-one with a volunteer career coach who's been fully trained to handle the duration of their appointment. One of the reasons we start in the clothing area versus on the resume and interview skills is because women form a relationship in the dressing room, um, and you talk through certain things that impact how you clearly feel about yourself, and that is reflected in how you dress often. And people think today that if you're going on an interview at a technology company, uh, you know, if you're going to an interview on Google and you're going to work there and wear ripped jeans, you can wear ripped jeans on the interview. That's not the case. People still expect you to dress professionally for a job interview. Um, And that means that you're in a suit, you're in a dress, um, or at the very least you're you're in a blazer and you look neat and clean. And it doesn't have to be necessarily a suit. It could be just a clean white shirt, um, you know, well presented um, to someone. And um, that's not always apparent to someone who's never been in the workforce before. No, I very often have said to um, students when talking about this, that an approach I like to take in interviews is 
I try to dress better than the person who's interviewing me um, because I want that person to be looking at me and going, wow, that's pretty impressive. Right. And I think what we, what we tell people is we, we don't want you to have to worry about what you look like. People should take one look at you when you walk in, think you look neat, clean, and professional, mm-hmm. and then focus on the content of what you have to say. Right. And when we get into that content of what we say in the interview, I guess what kind of advice do you provide? So a lot of what we provide is very basic in nature. Things like making eye contact, shaking someone's hand firmly, um, telling your story, what is your elevator pitch, um, a lot of these women, again, don't have, haven't been in environments where they've felt good about themselves, don't trust people, don't pick their head up when they walk in the our door. Their head is down, they've been treated like a number in a system for most of their lives and not treated with respect. So a lot of what we do is help to build their confidence, their self-esteem, and have them tell their story in a thoughtful way to show that they're qualified candidates for the job. And when you're doing that, um, what do you see in terms of a transition from the women themselves? What I most see, obviously, you can see the change physically because we change their clothing and they've often come in and, you know, a T-shirt and pants and whatever they've gotten, often from other sources, um, that's just street clothes. Um, and they're, they're not well-dressed. Obviously, you can see the physical transformation of what they look like. We actually take a photo of when they arrive in our offices and when they leave. Um, and people can think that's pretty superficial. But what I see and what I think is really important is look on their faces. I've come up in the elevator with people when they don't know who I am, and they're just very downtrodden. Um, again, they're not making eye contact. There's definitely not a smile on their face. And when they take those photos, their head is held high, and they're smiling ear to ear. Um, and the comments that I hear are things like, this is the first time anybody's treated me with respect. I've always been treated like a number. I've never been waited on in my life. Um, again, the, the difference is so subtle. If you've heard it on paper versus seeing it in person, um, but really what you're changing is people's opinion of themselves. Mm. One of the areas that I was reading about that um, Bottomless Closets also works on, which I found interesting, is in this area of financial management. Can you explain to us, to us what you do there? Sure. When you first come to our offices, you get all the clothing, um, accessories, um, resume help, interview skills that you need to ace your job interview. After that first appointment, hopefully you go out and get your job. Uh, When you come back, if you get the job, there's actually a bell that you ring up front, and the whole office stops and claps, which is a pretty awesome moment, not only for the applicant, but also for the people waiting who can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, At that point, you're actually entitled to two to three more outfits, so hopefully at the end of the process you have a week's worth of clothing. But you're also allowed to sign up for our series of workshops. Anybody who's ever walked in our doors, whether they get the job or not, can sign up for those workshops. And they fall into three primary areas, financial management, professional development, and personal enrichment. And the reason we offer financial management is because many of these women come in with a lot of debt, have no familiarity with the banking system, and are very reliant on check cashing places. So we start with everything at the very, very bottom, intro to banking, um, how to open a checking account, how to save money, 
um, how to read, read your statements. Um, we offer programs in banks, um, and we really start at a very basic level. And the courses go up all the way to how to buy your first home. Um, we work with people on their, how to understand their credit score. Um, a lot of them just want basic knowledge about how to get out of the debt that they have. So it really runs the gamut. Uh, professional development, we have everything from how to do your LinkedIn profile to how to ask for an increase or a promotion, um, even how to understand your benefits. You know, it's things that we probably take for granted in certain cases because we've been working for many, many years. But benefits, if you've never seen before in a big company, can be very overwhelming to understand. So we help them with the basic needs they have to get in the job and stay in the job. You can actually graduate from our professional development and financial management series, which is another resume builder for our clients who are often long-term unemployed. Uh, and a personal enrichment, we have things to support women as they transition to work, even yoga for stress relief. Uh, we have a class at Sephora on what's workplace-appropriate makeup. So everything in that workshop series is supporting their journey to self-sufficiency. You can listen to WFAN anytime, anywhere. Download the Radio.com app and favorite us today. If you have Alexa, just say play WFAN Sports Radio 101.9 or play WFAN Sports Radio 66 and you'll be locked in to the fan. We're in a discussion with Melissa Norton on our program. Melissa is Executive Director of Bottomless Closet, an interesting organization. We'll give you contact information for Bottomless Closet in uh, our discussion, too. This is an appropriate point, I think, Melissa, to talk about ways in which some of the people who are listening to our discussion, some of whom may be touched by what you've shared with us thus far in um, this chat. And frankly, there are some people who are in a position where they can be helpful in your efforts. Hint, hint, hint. What are you looking for? So our website is bottomlessclosetnyc.org. We're at 16 East 52nd Street between 5th and Madison in Manhattan. Our phone number is 212-563-2499. Okay, repeat all three of those, please. BottomlessClosetNYC.org, 16 East 52nd Street in Manhattan, between Madison and Fifth Avenues, 212-563-2499. Okay, we're talking with Melissa Norton, who is Executive Director of Bottomless Closet, certainly the best with Bottomless Closet. Thank you so much. We really appreciate the extra support. Rick Wolf Sports Edge follows our 8 o'clock update, and Ed Randall's Talking Baseball is along after our 9 o'clock update this Sunday morning. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program by Josh Douglas. Joshua Douglas is a professor at the University of Kentucky College of Law. Uh, he is joining us on our program to share some information that is part of his new book, Vote for Us, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting. Now, there's an interesting idea and an interesting topic for a book. First of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Thank you for having me. So many areas to go in discussion, but one of the key ones that I think is a great thing to get us started, and we'll talk about the book as well in the course of this discussion, is talking about the actual number of eligible voters who are participating in this 
great process of elections. What percent of eligible voters actually voted in the last presidential election? So in 2016, we had nationwide turnout of about 60%. Um, and of course, this varies by state. So some states may have had higher and some lower, but overall it was about 60% turnout. And I'll add, although you didn't ask it yet, in 2018, the turnout nationwide in the midterms was about 50%. Uh, and that was a record from decades. And people were kind of celebrating, saying this is great civic engagement to have 50% turnout. You know, I, I thought that half the people didn't show up. What are we celebrating? And <laughs> it says something about our democracy when uh, we're, we're happy about the fact that half the eligible electorate didn't vote. You know, that's amazing when you stop and think about it from that standpoint. And when you look at this, and, you know, part of your work involves looking at things like this in detail, what's really behind the numbers that we're seeing? You know, I think there's a couple of factors, and it's a complex question to determine, you know, why is turnout so low? Uh, compared to other countries uh, or just in general. I think there's a, a couple of things we could point to. Um, one are structural barriers to the ballot box. And when I say structural barriers, I mean things that make it just harder to vote or the fact that it's not particularly easy or convenient in many places to participate in our democracy. So whether it's, you know, short polling hours or not very many early voting opportunities, voter ID issues, uh, this, you know, sort of thing, oh, registration hurdles, um, you know, if you, many states, if you're not registered by 30 days before election day, uh, you're simply cut out of the process. So, you know, this package of election rules and the other thing is voter apathy. You know, many people feel like their vote won't make a difference. Uh, why bother showing up? You know, if you're a Republican in California or a Democrat in Texas, you feel like in the presidential election the outcome is predetermined. We can also point to things like redistricting, bad gerrymandering, uh, campaign finance issues with big money seeming to dictate the outcomes. And people have this sense that, you know, why even bother? But yet, you can look at a case that you're familiar with, 2013 Ben Miller's case. Right, would you tell our audience about that? Yeah. So Ben Miller was 16 years old in 2013, and he voted. Uh, how is this possible? Well, Tacoma Park, Maryland, lowered the voting age in 2013 to 16 for local elections. When I first heard about this reform, I thought it was kind of radical, actually. I didn't know much about it. And I've since become a proponent after learning about all of the various merits that are inherent in lowering the voting age, at least for local elections. So Tacoma Park did it first, uh, and then it spread to places like Hydesville, Maryland, and Greenbelt, Maryland, hopped over the, uh, across the country in Berkeley, California, lowered its voting age to 16 for school board elections. And actually, I just saw recently that the Los Angeles School Board unanimously voted to uh, have a feasibility study about lowering the voting age to 16 for its school board elections. So this is something that is now starting to spread, and we can get into the details if you want. But, you know, Ben Miller was uh, one of the first people to actually vote in uh, American elections at the age of 16 because his city lowered the voting age. So what do you say when people will say, and I'm sure you've heard this uh, argument, that high school students aren't going to be mature enough to vote? 
Well, that's a common reaction, and so I've done some research into psychological studies of brain development. And what I learned was that psychologists essentially break cognition into two categories. This is sort of simplified, but they essentially say that there's a difference between what they refer to as hot cognition and cold cognition. And hot cognition are um, sort of rapid decision-making, peer pressure issues, heat of the moment. And psychologists say that brains are not fully developed for proper hot cognition activities until at least age 21 and maybe 24 or 25. Cold cognition, on the other hand, is reasoned decision-making, not he's a moment, not peer pressure right when the decision is happening. And psychologists say that brains are cognitively developed for cold cognition by age 16. So if we want to peg the voting age to where people are actually mature enough to make the kinds of decisions that are necessary for the election process, actually 16 makes a lot more sense. So... If young adults are allowed to cast their first vote when they're 16, are they more likely to vote? Yeah. You know, studies show that one of the most uh, indicative factors of whether someone's going to vote is whether they voted previously. So voting is habit-forming. And studies show also that if you miss the first election for when you're out from when you're eligible – then you're much less likely to become a habitual voter. You know, non-voting is habit-forming as well. And 18 is kind of a strange time to start the voting process because, you know, people are moving away from their homes. They're either entering the workforce or going to school. Uh, they have to, in many places, register ahead of time, then request an absentee ballot, receive it, fill it out properly, sometimes get it witnessed properly, depending on the state, mail it back in in time. There's a lot of hurdles to jump over uh, to vote when you have all these other changes happening in your life. 16, however, makes a lot more sense because you're in the supportive environment of home and school. You know, we know where, where they all are, essentially, so we can get them registered. We can get them better educated in civics in engagement. And so I have a whole chapter about civics engagement and the ways in which we can reform that. I think that's an important part of this. And What's most interesting is that the places that have done this have proven results. So Tacoma Park, in, uh, 16 and 17-year-olds voted about twice the rate of 18 to 24-year-olds in uh, those elections since 2013. Well, what about this idea of actually lowering the voting age officially? I mean, last time it was lowered was, and this is a long time ago, 1972 when we went from 21 to 18, what's it going to take or could it take for us to lower the age again? Yeah, so let me first say that, you know, it was 21, as you noted, for most of our history, but that is almost actually a historical accident. Um, we, When our country was founded, we used essentially British common law that set the voting age at 21, and that comes from medieval practice um, where... 21 was the age in which men were thought to be able to wear a suit of armor, and so therefore were thought to sort of be part of society enough to also vote. And that was, comes from medieval times, that it was British common law, and then we adopted that. And as you noted, lowered the voting age uh, in the early 1970s to, uh, to, to 18, 
uh, based on the Vietnam War and this notion of old enough to fight, old enough to vote. If we wanted to lower the voting age to 16 nationwide, um, a constitutional amendment could make that happen, and there, there actually is a proposal in Congress to do that. Um, Congress could lower the voting age to 16 for federal elections. But honestly, I think the best way to do this is kind of this city-by-city uh, push that is already happening. Uh, you know, we've had campaigns in places like San Francisco, Washington, D.C. City Council has considered lowering the voting age. Um, you know, when we moved it from 21 to 18, it, actually that happened in several states first before the constitutional amendment. Georgia and Kentucky lowered the voting age to 18 well before uh, it happened nationwide. And I think this kind of piecemeal approach in cities is actually the best way because we can prove therefore that it works in some places and then more places are more are likelier to, to, to take the reform as well. Mm. One of the topics that comes up in discussions on the topic of voting, obviously now, and sometimes this is very hotly debated, is this whole discussion about felon disenfranchisement. Where do you stand on that? Well, I first think about what the history of felon disenfranchisement is, and it really comes from Jim Crow era laws to disenfranchise African Americans. You know, most felon disenfranchisement laws are from the late 1800s and early 1900s, where the country essentially was trying to find a way to cut newly freed slaves and African Americans out of the political process. So it has a racist history, and it also has a racist effect to this day, where you look at felon disenfranchisement rates and it just disproportionately harms minority voters. Um, I also wonder why there's ever been a link between committing a crime and participating in our democracy if we think that the right to vote is the most fundamental aspect of being a citizen in this country, and yet even when we send people to jail, we don't strip them of their citizenship. Um, so I don't think former felons or returning citizens should be disenfranchised. Um, there's also currently a discussion about whether we should even allow people to vote from prison. You know, Maine and Vermont do that, and does, no one suggests that democracy there has fallen apart because uh, currently incarcerated individuals have the ability to vote. Um, you know, the movement really right now is to at least enfranchise people once they've committed their, completed their sentences, and I think that's a very good move, and, and I'm happy to see that movement continue. Can you point to social benefits from that? Well, sure. I mean, you know, so I tell the story in the book. I opened the book with a, a guy named West Powell mm-hmm. who uh, helped to convince the Kentucky legislature to pass an expungement bill to allow some low-level felons to get an expungement of their records. You know, Kentucky is one of the worst states in the country for felon disenfranchisement. It still disenfranchises felons for life. But at least some low-level felons can get an expungement of their records thanks to West Powell essentially telling his story to a Senate Judiciary Committee and changing the minds of some of the legislators. And in terms of social benefits, you know, he himself talked about how even though he completed his sentence, had paid his debt back to society, and he, he had stolen a car radio from an auto salvage yard when he was 18. And 25 years later, he said, you know, I've cleaned up my life, and uh, I got a job, I got married, I had five kids. Um, what more do you want me to do to feel like a full member of society? And, you know, he basically said, 
being, by being branded a felon for life and not being able to vote, I don't feel like I'm actually part of my democracy. Ed Randall is along talking baseball after our 9 o'clock update this morning. Sports Edge follows our 8 o'clock update. Radio.com. We're talking with uh, Josh Douglas on our program, and uh, as I mentioned in the beginning of this uh, chat, he is a professor at the University of Kentucky College of Law, and he is joining us on our program, talking with us about um, some of the information contained in the book, Vote for Us, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting. That title obviously gets people's attention. What's the reaction been to it? Well, the vote for us part is interesting because people have noted kind of the double meaning of us and U.S. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, sort of purposeful to note that, you know, this is really about all of us and about all of the United States. And it's not a partisan-laden book. You know, some people have said, well, you know, all the reforms you talk about are intended just to help one political party over the other. And my answer is no, this is about helping our democracy um, and, you know, many of these reforms actually are bipartisan. I can point to states, you know, so-called red states that are passing some of these reforms, just like so-called blue states. Um, and then you know, the subtitle of how to take back our elections and change the future of voting, I think people see the positive nature of that message. And, you know, this really is a positive book. It's about what's possible. So there's so much doom and gloom out there when it comes to the right to vote and this sense that voter suppression is on the rise and it's hard to participate in our elections. You know, that's true uh, in many respects, and we need to fight back against that voter suppression, and we need to fight back against that doom and gloom. But the message here is that we can go beyond that to promote positive voting rights reforms, thanks to these everyday individuals that I profile in the book. Uh, I call them democracy champions, you know, people like uh, ben Miller, who got to vote for the first time in Tacoma Park, or West Powell, who helped to convince the Kentucky legislature. And so really, I hope people see the optimism in the title and in the stories that are in the book about what's possible for our democracy. The difference between voter registration fraud and election fraud, would you talk about that? Yeah. So many people feel like there's a lot of voter fraud in our system because they hear these notions that our voter registration rules are bloated, that they're outdated, that there's lots of people on the rolls who have moved away or who have died. And the simple answer is that voter registration bloat is not the same as, as election fraud. Um, there simply is not a lot of election fraud in our system. And where there is, we find it. You know, you can point to the North Carolina example from 2018 in the congressional election there, um, simply having outdated voter rolls doesn't mean that we have lots of people voting fraudulently. And, you know, this makes sense because people do move, people do die, and, you know, it's a work to update the registration rolls. But simply the fact of having registration rolls that are not 100% accurate in no way means that these people are actually voting fraudulently as well. And I think our conversation really does need to separate the two, um, you know, and even if people are, are found to engage in, you know, filling out voter registration forms fraudulently, uh, that has nothing to do with whether these people are also engaged in actually trying to change election outcomes. 
Well, do we have any real reason to fear this idea of trying to make it easier for people to vote? I mean, this is talked about an awful lot of, you know, making things easier, using technology, things like that. Well, the only things we have to fear in terms of uh, election fraud or security are um, systematic attempts to change results, you know, things like uh, security of election machines itself, uh, foreign interference with our elections, you know, those sorts of things um, it could have a difference if they, if they occur because they're on large scale. And I contrast this with, for example, the common justification for strict photo identification laws, you know, where people say, well, you know, you need to be able to prove your identity before you vote because uh, otherwise you might have all these fraudulent voters showing up and pretending to be someone they're not. Um, and I look at the studies, you know, the only way to, the only thing, rather, that voter ID laws prevent is in-person impersonation, someone showing up to the polls and pretending they're someone they're not. And this just doesn't happen very much at all, and it'd be a really dumb way to throw an election. Because if you're trying to change election outcomes by getting a bunch of people to show up at the polls, well, you need a lot of people involved in the conspiracy to make sure you can make a difference. And the more people you involve, the more people or the more likely you are to be caught. So, you know, if people are trying to throw an election through in-person impersonation, it's just not a very smart way to do it. Um, you know, we do need to be vigilant about the security of our elections, but that has to go with, you know, making sure our poll workers are being honest, making sure we're rooting out vote buying, um, absentee balloting. We've had issues there sometimes, um, but not on making it easier to vote in general. This idea of trying to make voting as easy as possible and, you know, to make it attractive, you know, everything from people have talked about the idea of being able to vote online. Uh, some people talk about trying to advocate the idea of making this as easy as food shopping. Is that realistic? Yeah, well, the online part, maybe not yet. Um, you know, there are some places that are experimenting with blockchain as a technological basis for online voting. And actually, some counties in West Virginia did use an app uh, that involved blockchain for some overseas voters. And apparently, it worked pretty well. But I'm not sure that the technology is there just yet for online voting through blockchain or some other means. But making voting as easy as food shopping, you know, actually is possible. And, and that gets the title of one of the chapters in one of the reforms uh, that is known as Vote Centers. So this comes from Colorado, and the idea was started by a guy named Scott Doyle, a Republican engineer in Larimer County, Colorado, who joined the county clerk's office there late in his career. And he heard about some voters in 2000 during the presidential election in 2000 who were turned away from their polls. They had gone to what ended up being the wrong polling place, the wrong precinct, towards the end of the day and were turned away and then went to what their correct polling place was, but they were too late. Uh, the polls had closed, and so they were disenfranchised because of, they made the mistake of going to the wrong place. And so Scott Doyle went home one night and sort of and thought about, well, how, how do we vote, and does this really make sense? And again, he's kind of an engineer, so he brought his engineering expertise to the problem. 
and sketched out models of voting and came up with a, a system known as vote centers, where essentially instead of having to go to a home-based precinct, you know, the polling place closest to your house, you can go to any vote center in the county and vote. And you check in at the vote center there, and it, uh, they're all electronically linked. So once you check in one, you can't go to the others. Uh, and it prints out the ballot for your home address. Um, but this is kind of like food shopping in that, you know, as he put it, I can go to a supermarket anywhere I find one and get basically the same thing. Why can't voting be the same way? Why are we tied to our home-based precinct? Um, and instead, you know, why can't I just go to the closest vote center to my uh, work or to my uh, school or from out doing errands or whatever? So we got this implemented in Larimer County, and the voters loved it. Turnout went up. It was actually cheaper because they needed fewer polling stations and, and fewer poll workers. Um, and uh, this has now spread to a handful of other places, including all Colorado, which actually uses a dual system. They use uh, universal vote by mail where every voter is mailed about and vote centers. Places in uh, New Mexico. Houston just announced it's going to move the vote center model uh, Kansas said that it'll allow its counties to use vote centers. Indiana, so a bunch of places use this now to great success. Mm. What about the impact of the voting by mail? Yeah, so you know this started in Oregon initially, uh, thanks to the innovative thinking of a guy there named Phil Kiesling. Uh, and interestingly, Phil, who when he was in the Oregon legislature, was opposed to universal vote by mail, also known as vote at home, because he had this notion of the civic-minded nature of joining your neighbors uh, to feel the crunch of the leaves in the autumn as you walk to your polling place. But as he put it, you know, I, I was mistaking the essence of voting with, or the, the practice of voting with its essence, which is participation. And um, universal vote by mail or vote at home increases participation because it makes it so much easier for people to participate from the comforts of their home. So uh, the way it works is that the state automatic or the county automatically mails you your ballot about two or three weeks before Election Day. So you can sit at home and research the issues in candidates. This leads to a more informed, educated electorate. And then drop off your ballot at a secure drop box or mail it in through the mail. Um, it began in a few counties in Oregon first, and then it spread statewide. Now uh, it's the reality for all elections in Washington, as well as Colorado, which I noted uses kind of this dual system where everyone receives a ballot, and then, but if you don't, for whatever reason, return it, you can go to any vote center on Election Day. Um, almost all of Utah uses universal vote by mail, all but one county. Uh, Hawaii just passed a law to allow universal vote by mail. But here's the most important part. Turnout in these states is much higher than in states that use a traditional system of you know, in-person polling places uh, with you know the ability to request an absentee ballot uh, some states require you still to have an excuse. Um, and the studies show that turnout is just much higher in universal vote-by-mail states as compared to the other states. Mm. The Electoral College, Josh, um, is this really needed? No. Um, you know, maybe it once was, uh, or we could at least debate that in terms of uh, the different nature of our country. But today we have, you know, nationwide campaigns uh, nationwide communication in a much different society. 
Um, and this isn't about election results. It's about democracy, and it's about increasing participation. You know, as I said, there are people in some states who just don't feel like it even matters whether they vote in their state's presidential election because the outcome seems preordained. And the candidates just focus on, you know, the six to eight swing states uh, to the exclusion of the rest of the country. Um, now, this is uh, a difficult thing to change because it's in the Constitution, so you need a constitutional amendment or a workaround. And there's currently a, a, a system in, that is being trying to be adopted called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, where essentially states agree to award their electoral votes not to, not to whoever wins their state, but to whoever wins the national popular vote. And it's passed in about a dozen states. Um, it doesn't go into effect, however, until enough states have passed it to equal 270, which is the number of electoral college votes that are needed to win. Um, I think there's also some serious constitutional questions if it ever does pass enough states. I mean, it is basically a workaround to the Constitution. So, you know, it's a difficult uh, problem, but unfortunately it's one that is kind of embedded within our current Constitution. Other countries in some cases get higher voter participation rates than we do here. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with us? Yeah, what's, um, what's wrong with that picture, in other words? Well, well, you know, we consider ourselves an advanced democracy, the envy of the world, um, and yet we fall pretty low on the ranking scale when it comes to our voter participation. Um, you know, some countries have mandatory voting, where it's a, essentially a requirement, and they have a turnout of 90 95%. Um, Australia does this, and, and they have a pretty educated electorate. Um, I'm not suggesting that we adopt mandatory voting here, but I do think that if we adopt all of the reforms I talk about, we could achieve something close to, you know, very high turnout. In the book, I say, let's not strive for, you know, 90% turnout, which seems crazy given our current numbers. But, you know, why not have a goal like that? And then, you know, if we only reach 77 or 75%, well, that's pretty darn good. Uh, it's a pretty good improvement. You know, what's wrong is, again, we make it not easy to vote in many places. Uh, there's a lot of voter apathy. Um, and uh, the combination of those leads to, in my view, a, a less engaged electorate than we should have for a democracy that should be the envy of the world. Most interesting discussion with Josh Douglas. He's a professor at the University of Kentucky College of Law and the author of Vote for Us, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting. Thank you very much for joining us. Certainly the best with your work. Thanks, Bob. This was fun. Rick Wolf's along with the Sports Edge program after our 8 o'clock update. Ed Randall's by talking baseball after our 9 o'clock update here on The Fan. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.